This is the Strength Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. Okay, Bane, here we are on episode 15. El Quince. It's our quinceanera. Oh, look at us. Of the Strength and Anger podcast. We're growing up. I am Eric Stone along with Robert Bain. Let's, uh, let's start with a little bit of tying up some loose ends from last week. Um, yeah, I think we, I probably got more feedback on last week's episode than I've ever gotten before. Yeah, agreed. In person, uh, definitely from yeah. the members here. Yeah. Um, one quick clarification. I mentioned fellow powerlifter Dr. Fred Clary, not Carey, ah. who listened to the podcast and has his own, which I still need to look up, but who sent me some feedback. Um, Ho- hopefully positive, aside from the name issue. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if he heard that episode yet or not. So, okay. But yes, his feedback was positive, said he enjoyed the history. Um, yeah, I've gotten a lot of feedback on the reading of the DMs. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, almost everything was people reached out and said, hey, this is hilarious. You know, I, I had to turn it down at work because I was laughing so hard. And then I would say almost universally, it was as soon as I read the ones that came to my daughter, because many of the people that listen to our podcast either know of Lily or know her personally, just the the level of anger was incredible, <laughs> uh, which I'm not necessarily upset about because I know that my daughter has a lot of strong friends in many places, so she is protected. Uh, but it was interesting to hear some of the feedback folks gave uh, based on listening to that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I got a lot of feedback on especially one particular member's DMs who were <laughs> populated quite a bit of that episode. Yep, um, yep. Thanks for all the contributors, by the way. And then you had one, one, you know, kind of like additional, because most of our DMs were, I guess, positive, I guess would be a way of putting them, or, you know, people trying to reach out and... Uh, we we had some fun with those. I think it was, you know, you're right. It was definitely someone trying to reach out, trying to make a connection. And then there's the troll DMs and comments. Yeah. I, I usually tend to find that trolls are more often, like, in the comment section of Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. et cetera. But I'm sure that there are some troll DMs as well. Yeah. And, and that's one of the ones that uh, actually member here at 2XL brought to my attention is that there are those that do reach into the, the, the PMs and DMs and, you know, they can, they can say some, some pretty hurtful things and it's, you know, just as thirsty and aggressive as they get with trying to connect with people, they can be just as aggressive with, uh, saying things that, because they had the anonymity of the screen that they probably would never say in person. Yeah. I think that's almost a whole nother episode talking about the negativity of the internet related to the anonymity of it. Again, whether or not it is your actual name on that Mm-hmm. Facebook profile, Instagram or not, the fact that you're not face-to-face with the person I think makes a huge difference. This goes all the way back to the old school message boards where yep. it was just a dumpster fire of comments when there was a squat poster from some meat and everybody and their brother had an opinion on whether it was high or whether he wore gear, whether he was on drugs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Especially if you see a female posting a video and she's maybe like, you know, doesn't have a six-pack abs. Right. Well, of course, some a hole is going to post about how she's, you know, overweight and needs to lose weight, and 
Or if she's extra jacked, obviously she's on drugs, or she's got a bigger dick than I do, or something, something like that. Right, exactly. So, I think that's uh, probably another episode. There's like, yeah. like we said, there's a lot of, you know, issues we can touch on when it relates to the internet and social media. Certainly. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a wide ranging, it's a worldwide thing, the worldwide web of negativity. So, Bane, what is going on with you? Uh, I have to do a little bit of vague posting here, but there are some changes going on. Vague booking? Yeah, a little bit here. Uh, I know you and I talked a little bit about it last night uh, before you went to dinner, but uh, just, yeah, some big changes happening, uh, hopefully positive. Big. Huge, immense, large. Uh, but other than that, you know, training's going well. Uh, you know, running through the, the last part of this block, and then I'll be doing some believe I'm testing on squat and deadlift next week, uh, right after the new year, so kind of excited for that. Uh, but other than that, that's uh, that's really what's going on. Obviously, they got the holiday, and I'll be laying low from us. That what is uh what is going on with you, Mister Stone? Man, a lot. Uh, we're just kind of finishing things up here. Mm-hmm. Last week or so at twenty Yorktown Convenience Center, and we are moving XL two point Yep, and we are moving the gym to two XL three point Yeah, uh, on Friday. Well, I, I guess it depends on when we post this. We'll probably post this. Um, either Christmas Eve later yeah, from when we're recording it or Christmas Day. So, yeah, it'll still be Friday. So, um, Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, we're moving the gym. It's a, it's a big undertaking. I was just chatting with my sister last night about when she moved her office mm-hmm. for the uh, – she is executive director for a charity in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how her husband had built her, like, basically a reception desk and realized – it was too big to fit in the elevator or up the stairs, and he had, to, he had to take it apart with his dad. Um, you know, and she was talking about how the movers couldn't figure out how to put the cubicles together, so her husband had to instruct them how to do it, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. That's actually really funny, yeah. I told her that we mostly hire high school boys and pay them cash and pizza. Yeah. So that's what we'll be doing, although I did rent a big truck. So we got the big truck. Nice. Like usual, and nice. uh, it's a lot of stuff to move. I... My hope, knock on wood, is that this is the last move that we will have to do for a long time. I, it's, you know, that's what my gut says, but you never know. I mean, business is good, then maybe maybe additional evolution happens. Oh, we'll geez. see. Yeah, let's let's just uh, fill this one first. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Uh, well, congratulations for that because I know we we've talked about it a little bit, and now it's uh, it's almost D Day, and it's uh, but it's a it's an exciting thing, it's a scary thing, but it's uh, yeah. Both. I think it's going to be great for. For 2XL, for Team Stone, and for powerlifting in the Chicagoland and Midwest in general, uh, just with everything that's going to go on in that space. So I, I am very, very excited to get in there. Yeah, I go, I bounce between being excited and being really nervous. So, uh, you know, if you're nervous, then that means that there's something you got to work on. So I just got to sit down and crunch some numbers and figure some things out to, you know, get rid of that nervousness. Well, if it doesn't scare you, it's not going to change you, my friend. So that's that's 100% true. Yeah. Hunted. Uh, we've got some good uh, bullshit ones. I'll let you start, Bane. What is bullshit? You know what? Hallmark movies are fucking bullshit. Okay. And I don't have cable, so I'm not even really super familiar with these. So, so Hallmark movies, if you're not familiar, I mean, it is a whole channel, the Hallmark channel. Sure. And they have a... Never watched it. Yeah. They have a recipe which has worked for years, and people like this, and there's actually been some studies done on this, about the Hallmark movie recipe. And it is the same thing, where... Someone is either coming home for the holidays or there is, you know, a tradition that they are re-engaging they have not for a while. They bump into somebody they either A, haven't seen in a while or a new person that they somehow are attracted to. 
and there's usually a male or female protagonist. Usually female. Of course. And then there's the up and down of figuring out how will this relationship ever work? Oh, no, this happened. Oh, no, no, it's not going to happen. Christmas is ruined. And then suddenly Christmas Day, there's snow and people kiss and that's it. That is the basic plot line of about 700 freaking movies on the Hallmark Channel that all star the same 10 white people. Okay. And I just, it, it blows my mind that this is an entire channel, an entire genre of movie now is Hallmark movies. Now, I will say, there's been studies done that show that there is something about the the knowing what's going to happen. Even though it's a little different, you know, a little different lines, there's just something about that that is very comforting, especially during a time of year where some folks have a lot of anxiety. Some folks really don't like this type of year. To be very frank, I'm one of them. I really don't like the holidays. And so there is something about that that people find very reassuring. That's one of the reasons why Hallmark movies have done so well over the years. It's Uh, like your comfort food. It's Essentially, yeah. Uh, That said, Hallmark movies still bullshit. So that's my, my take. Eric, yeah, what, I mean, well, I, again, it's not like we want to get in politics on this podcast, but, you know, someone, I made the comment to you yesterday that politics is just like WWE for smart people. God, that was so good. And, you know, it's it's like everyone knew it was going to happen with the impeachment. I don't want to get into politics, but everyone knew it was going to happen, but yet everyone was watching it, right? Yeah. It's just like pro wrestling. I mean, you, you know that there's a predetermined outcome, Yeah, but you still want to watch it to see what happens. And you almost feel like there is a predetermined outcome running into next year because they, they needed something to keep us entertained. Uh, I will say that our current commander-in-chief, he does put the peach in impeachment. Boy, thick. <laughs> we'll move right on from that. Uh, my what is bullshit yeah, is what's bullshit? happy holidays is, is happy bullshit. Holidays bullshit. Because, first of all, the reason for the season is truly Christmas. And if there's another holiday, feel free to just you know wish me a happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah started... Two days ago, I believe. But wouldn't you be offended because you're not Jewish? No. If, in fact, I ran into about six or seven dudes for some reason right outside the Bears game on Sunday, and okay. they all looked like they were dressed in traditional Jewish garb. Okay. Stopped my dad and I, asked us, asked us if we were Jewish. No. But I said, happy Hanukkah anyways. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, if you say happy, happy Hanukkah to me, I'm not going to be offended. And Christmas at this point is at least as much a secular holiday as it is a religious one. Sure. You know, as someone who is a believer, certainly I think the religious undertones of it are probably more important. But for the average person, everybody likes getting the day off. Yeah. Everybody likes giving and getting presents for the most part. So if you want to wish me a happy holidays, just let's be specific. (laughs) Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa if you would like. Happy New Year, yeah. whatever. Happy Festivus. Yeah, Happy Festivus started two days ago. Yep. The airing of grievances, which essentially is what is bullshit every week. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's my what is bullshit. Gotcha. Well, happy holidays, Eric. Yeah. F you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's get to this week's topic, man. I think this is, uh, this is an interesting one. Um, one we've kind of talked about. We've either alluded to or we've even talk, talked about another podcast, just to kind of the whole uh, running a powerlifting meet. There's a lot that goes into that besides just showing up on meet day. Definitely. Um, so I think what we're gonna, how we're gonna kind of handle this, I'm gonna ask you some questions. Some of these are predetermined. I did throw a couple others in there uh, for you to think about overnight, but uh, just to kind of give some history on how you got into it, and then what folks need to think about as they look at all the various ins and outs of running a powerlifting meet. So that's kind of the preface for all this. So yeah, and I, I. I don't know that everyone who listens, actually, probably most people who listen to this will never run a powerlifting meet. No, probably not. But I thought it would be interesting for them to kind of 
take a little peek behind the curtain mm-hmm. and, you know, if there are things that they like or dislike, maybe they would have a little bit better context as to perhaps why some decisions are made mm-hmm. um, and, you know, how things work. I think it's interesting to, for me, it's always interesting to find out a little bit more on how things work. So as someone who knows, at least in this context, knows how things work, at yeah. least Mediumly, I thought it would be interesting to look and there's at. There's literally a whole TV series called How Things Work, so I think this, you know, <laughs> this fits in well. So, so let's kind of dive in. So, you know, talk about how you got started running meets. Yeah, so it it started probably even back a little bit sooner than when I ran meets, mm-hmm. and I started powerlifting. If you listen to our origin episode, I started powerlifting in 2000. Um, I decided I wanted to get more involved in the sport around, we'll say, 0203 and became an APF referee. At the time, I was kind of starting to train with the Franz team, and they ran a lot of the meets in Chicago for the APF, if not all the meets at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to get involved. And spotting and loading as a five foot five at that time, 160, 170 pound dude. Adorable. Probably not ideal. There's a picture of me spotting, you know, <laughs> fellow Monster Garage, Marosher Powerlifting team, former member Keith Early, who's like 6'5", 275 pounds, mm-hmm. and like the the plates are literally above my head as I'm spotting them, because he was like not only tall, but then he was slightly tilted away from me That's, on the side I was spotting. That so is scary. If he had fallen, I'm not sure that I would have been able to catch it optimally. Sure. So I said, there has to be a better way for me to get involved in meets, and so I became a referee. From there, I you know got more involved in you know, kind of helping of the promotion of the meets. I started a website back in that time called chicagopowerlifting.com, which mm-hmm. still exists to this day, mm-hmm. basically kind of a a resource. Because at the time, nothing existed, and there was no Facebook, Instagram that you could search for that stuff. Mm-hmm. In fact, even websites for powerlifting federations wasn't standard operating procedure. So I created the website just as kind of like a, a one-stop resource for, you know, find a gym in Chicago that's powerlifting-related, yep. find meets in the Chicago area, find teams in the Chicago area, you know, those types of things. And it was kind of through that and becoming a referee that I got more interested in helping with the background of meets. One of our teammates, Tanya Bruton, trained with us at Franz on Saturdays, but she lived up in... I don't know if she lived in Waukegan, but she lived way up north. Yeah. She came down and trained with us on Saturdays. And the gym, the other gym she trained at, a powerhouse gym at the time in Waukegan, Mm -hmm. had hosted some meets before, and they were interested in hosting another meet. So Tanya came to me because we were friends and said, hey, do you think Ernie or, you know, the APF would be interested in running a meet at this you know, Waukegan powerhouse gym. No, no. And so I brought the idea to Ernie and Maris. And now kind of being into it for a while, I totally see where Ernie was coming from because at that time he was at least in his 60s. This Mm -hmm. is 2000. When we planned the meet, it was at the very least early 2004. It might have even been late 2003 when we started planning the meet. And Ernie was like, ah, you know, I don't want to run another meet. Why don't you run it? (laughs) Probably just offhandedly saying that and thinking I would never do it. But when he said that to me, I said, well... Famous last words. Right. Like, uh, maybe I could run a meet. I mean, I I don't know anything about it, but I'm willing to learn. Mm -hmm. And along with his help, and especially Maris Sternberg's help, um, one of my other former coaches who's passed away, she was a big member of the Franz Power team. She was the 
original secretary of the APF WPC. Um, she was the record keeper, you know, very strong lady, one of the pioneers of women's powerlifting. Legend. Yeah, she helped me a lot with that first meet. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know, I I can go through the whole story, but if you listen to our first episode, I go through a little bit more in the story on mm-hmm. like my poor negotiation skills in that <laughs> meet and some of the issues. But that's essentially how I got started. I owned no equipment, literally nothing. Um, I had the resource of Franz Gym for referees um, and spotters, loaders, helpers. But I, I borrowed and rented all the equipment. Um, mm-hmm. I, I paid Ernie Franz for his equipment. He basically gave me all the equipment I needed for the platform. Mm-hmm. The warm-up room at that meet was the gym itself. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we go into some of the other sections. But uh, it, it was a learning experience, to say the least. Um, but it went well enough. I didn't lose money. I made maybe 500 bucks on it okay. with, a, with a shoestring budget. And... Uh, continued to run meets from there and eventually took over in 2006 as the state chairman of Illinois. Um, One of the reasons in my mind why I wanted to start Team Stone or start my own team is that I saw that meet directors usually had a team to help them run their meets. And it it was very uncommon for a meet director to not have a team that they worked with or a gym. And at that time, I certainly wasn't in any position to have a gym. Right. But I certainly could start a team at where I worked. And that's that along with my work schedule and allowing me to train with Franz anymore, Um, you know, wanting to have some of my own equipment. uh, Part of the reason why we started the team. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. So as as I'm hearing all this, it kind of sounds a little bit like that first summer bash was kind of a trial by fire. You know, you, you got into it and... Is it you learned a lot? You learned a lot of what works, what doesn't work, and uh, obviously adjusted from there because you've done a couple more since then. Uh, so, moving on to come some of the the next things, you know how how you think about you know what meat and what type of meat to run. Like, what's usually your thought process for that? Yeah, so my thought process has always been: is there a need in the marketplace? So, just like any product or service, like. Is what you could offer unique, and is there a you know demand for it? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you could have the best venue and the best equipment and uh, the best setup and everything, but if there's no lifters and no one's interested in lifting in your meat, it's useless. So you have to start with a need, mm-hmm. um, and I think that first summer bash was successful. Because it, at the time, did fill a need. Because at the time, basically nobody was running any summer meets in Chicago. Um, For many years prior, Dennis Brady, USAPL meet director, had run the Viking Open, which I had helped with a few times. And it was typically in May. Okay. Uh, Sometimes late May. I don't know. I wasn't always around for it. But when I had helped with it, it had been in May. And I think 2003 was the last year that he ran it. And so there was this kind of gap, uh, maybe it was 2004, but some t- somewhere around the first time I started running Summer Bash, he stopped running as many meets. Okay. And at some point, he took a complete hiatus. So there was a need in the marketplace for, you know, a at that time, it was an early summer meet. The Summer Bash typically in those days was uh, the end of June. It was its original running time. Okay. Um, and it eventually has evolved to late July for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of where I start with, you know, when and what type of meet to run. Um, there's been some that have been not successful that we tried through years. Uh, the second meet I ran was the Windy City 
it actually I said open. I think it was the Windy City Ironman. Mm-hmm. Ironman meaning bench plus deadlift. Mm-hmm. And it was run in January. And the, my thought process was, well, you got the state meet in March. At that time, Ernie ran a regional meet sometime in the fall. So maybe let's fit a push-pull meet in there somewhere. Less work for me to run because you don't need a monolift. And I ran it at the the old Leaning Tower Y. If you've yeah. ever driven by it, there's... My wife works there. Oh, she works at the Leaning Tower Y? Yeah, she's one of the instructors there. Yeah. Oh, wow, that, that's that's a small world. Yep. They used to have a pretty big powerlifting contingent at that gym. Yeah, it's huge. Um, they had a monolift. They had competition bench. They had some competition squat racks. Mm-hmm. They had the like this random room in the basement that we ran meets at, yep. that Ernie ran meets at way many years ago. My original coach uh, always talks about the Leaning Tower Y and the culture that was there and how he... I miss this culture in, in Leaning Tower where we had all these power lifters and now they all went away. Yeah, I think, you know, whoever owned the monolith took it out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what happened to the rest of the equipment, but that was a meet that I ran there. And at the time, I was running that meet thinking that that would be a location for the, the Summer Bash 2, the second Summer okay. Bash. Cool. And, you know, it was like a 25-lifter meet. It actually still didn't lose money. Mm-hmm. And, but the venue, I think for some reason, thought there was going to be, like, a panacea of money coming down on them when I ran the meet. And yeah. the deal I negotiated was, you know, fair, I thought. You know, they took the door and concessions. I think I even gave them a percentage of what I made. Mm-hmm. And it was not very much. But then they said, eh, this is not enough. Right. We don't want to run it here. So I ended up running the second Summer Bash at the place I worked at the time, Velocity, which turned out to be, you know, very good. Right. Um, it was a nice big venue, and the second Summer Bash was 90 lifters after the first one was, like, 45 to 50. It, it's interesting because, uh, as my wife and I have talked, cause she obviously talks to a lot of the management there, and some of them kind of know the history of the the gym gym at, at the Leaning Tower Y, and that was about when they started deciding that they no longer wanted the powerlifting community in, in their gym. Yeah, it sounds about right. That was 05? Yeah, that was 05 that we ran the Windy City Ironman, and then Summer Bash 2 was at uh, the Velocity in Willowbrook. So thanks, you screwed that up for all of us, appreciate it. (laughs) I guess if it would have made a bunch of money, maybe it would have have changed. Should have made it rain, man, what the hell? You know, another idea I had was I always thought that a squat-only meet would be a good idea. We tried it a couple times, and nobody seemed to be interested in it. There could have been some other reasons there, but... Yeah, you know. Uh, you know, but some of the other meets I came up with through the years, you know, the rise of the deadlift originally was a deadlift only meet. Mm-hmm. We later added a bench press, but it was again, you know, it was in the fall. Um, at that time there were, Ernie had stopped running the, the regional meet that he ran. And so we thought there was kind of a niche and mm-hmm. I always had at that time kind of like to throw in a push pull here or there because they are much easier to run than a full meet. And at that time, back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, Bench only was much bigger. Um, I think now full power meets are way, way, way bigger. You know, we still do a couple single lift meets, but they're not nearly as big as when we do a full meet. That's way bigger. So, uh, a quick segue on that, and then to dive back into the the how to pick. Do you, do you think that the deadlift only or even the push pulls are kind of like good, you know, entry level type meets for a lot of people? Do you, uh, I mean, obviously, you guys have uh, uh, another way to do that, but. Do you feel that you know, those push pulls are really a great way for folks to kind of get started into competing? Yeah, I think they can because the squat is probably the biggest worry for new lifters, getting yep. depth yep. and you know the lifting on a different piece of equipment. And yeah, I've had lifters that have done their first meet as the rise of the deadlift, yep. bench deadlift, or another meet that we have bench deadlift. I think that's a decent way to start because at least you get the feel for how a meet runs as far as mm-hmm. attempts and the flow, but you don't have to worry about what is most likely the 
most challenging one of the meat the squat. Not if you squat ass to grass. USAPL. <laughs> um, and some of the other meats that we've started through the years, the Illinois Raw Power Challenge was, again, set to be kind of a niche meat when Raw was new and there was nobody running meats at the end of the year. We ran that at the gym I worked at because we knew that Raw was going to be easier to run because you didn't have as much stuff. You didn't have people at that time wrapping their knees. Yep. So they didn't need as much space. They didn't need, you know, knee wrapping area. There weren't as many handlers. And so we thought, well, about that? we don't want to move equipment in December in Chicago because that could be disastrous if there's, sure. a, if there's a snowstorm. So let's run a meet, you know, kind of in the gym and let's fill this niche of raw. How's, how's that? niche turned out here yeah now it's not the niche now equip lifting yeah. is the niche what how many folks were at the raw challenge that we just had a couple weeks ago we had uh i think 130 140 lifters that's wild and that was down marginally from past years mm-hmm. i was i was just looking at the budget and past years were around 160 yeah so uh, yeah, i thought we had 670 the last time i did it yeah the the, the last couple of years we did have more bench deadlift lifters okay and then uh Last couple of years, we just had more lifters enter and drop out, honestly. Mm, interesting. So interesting. I think we were down just in entered lifters. The, the actual number of lifters that lifted was similar. But yeah, I, last year we had just an incredible amount of lifters that entered the meet and like bowed out, and then I was able to fill that spot. Interesting. Interesting. So yeah, and then and you the, fast. Last time I did it, I was 50 pounds lighter. It's <laughs> <laughs> the one meet I did at 220. Like an idiot. Fast forward to this year, and we added the niche of the Midwest Equipped Open. Yes. And so, again, we were trying to fill, you know, okay, equipped lifting is kind of on the comeback, so let's try a meet that's just equipped. And I think it makes sense to have a flavor to the meat, a theme to it. So it's sure. not just, here's a meat. It's, hey, what's what makes this meat unique? What makes, what makes, it, what makes it different? And... What's the reason why you're running this meat as opposed to just any other meat that you're running? Yeah. Especially for us, since we run, you know, a lot of meats. Right, right. You know, we started the beginner's intros meats originally as seminars, Mm -hmm. you know, because I saw the need that there was a ton, ton of new lifters coming into the sport. And many of them were, I don't want to say clueless, but they... Oh, I think it's... I was. They didn't come in the same way that I came in with, you know as maybe the only beginner and someone pulled me aside and said, here's the things you need to know. Right. There's half the meat is beginners. You can't do that. Which by the way, we have a whole episode on that. Yeah, we do. We do. So that's kind of how we started that. And eventually it evolved into being an entire sanctioned meat. Um, you know, and I always try to keep my hand on the pulse of what's going on in powerlifting and you have to be able to adapt. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, again, there was a time in the early two thousands, mid two thousands where, Bench-only meets were huge. I mean, people were running bench bashes for cash, and huge. there was a lot of bench-only meets. We still do one bench-only meet for charity per year. We do one push-pull. You know, some of our other meets will have a bench deadlift component, mm-hmm. but the the second summer bash had, I think, only two flights. It had 90 lifters, but it only had two flights of full power. Wow. And it had three flights of bench-only. Wow. So there were more bench-only lifters than full power lifters. Huh. And it, 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 that was pretty much modus operandi for a long time is that you'd get almost the same amount of bench only lifters as you will full full power lifters and it seems like raw power lifting has replaced bench only yeah interesting it's a very interesting so I, that's what i kind of think about when i think about like you know a meat to run or what meat to run or what type of meat is you know i, I kind of just think about you know is there a need and what what is this meat trying to 
do in the marketplace. Sure, sure. That's and that's smart because you know I think there are some meets they get put out there just oh we're we're gonna have a powerlifting meet and obviously you guys are are a lot more strategic in in how you do it and and also when you think about it when you're doing these regularly it creates a flow uh you know to the calendar where there's you know I know in your guys case you've got the the women's empowerment meet you've got the beginners meet you've got the state meet and then this kind of flow into the rest of the calendar and so um, sure I do think about you know kind of what the strategy is okay. When should we place those beginners meets? So maybe, you know, they could lift in the next big local meet. Yep. You know, we've done the intro meet, for instance, the last few years in November. And I'm thinking next year about moving it to September for a couple reasons. A, so I don't have two meets in November. This year we had the Midwest Equipped Open and intro meet on consecutive weekends. And then you had the Rock Power Challenge three like, weeks later. Right. <laughs> and then you're moving the gym two weeks after that. Right. <laughs> and so the other element of as well if somebody does the beginners meet, you know, they're going to be really excited. If they had a good experience, then think, okay, what's the next meet I can do? Yep. You know, certainly if I lift in a meet in November, I'm not immediately going to lift a meet in December. But if I move that meet maybe back to September, that's maybe, you know, just enough time to where, okay, I did a meet. Now let me think about lifting in the next meet, which is the Illinois Raw Power Challenge in December. Yep. And so there's some thought process I put into there on wow, one meet might lead into the next based on what I've seen people you know, how I've seen lifters act and enter meets. Yeah, makes sense. So, sorry, right, so we've talked about, you know, how you got started with it. We've talked about what type of meets to uh, to run. How do you decide where you're going to do it, the venue? Because I think the venue is an incredibly important component of any meet that you, you put on. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, now we're in a position where we're going to run a lot of meets in our gym, but if you don't own a gym, the new twenty-two thousand square feet, two two XL, three point Yeah, if you don't have, you know, a gym of your own, or you don't train at a gym, you know, you got to think about. It. And for us, like meets like National Worlds, that's a big thing that we have to think about. Is yeah, you know, how do we get a venue? Um, you know, there's a bunch of things I think about. You know, first of all, what type of meet are you running? Mm-hmm. Is it a small local meet? Is it a national or world meet? Is it a state meet, which is a little bit bigger? And so how much space do you need? Usually, from a square foot-wise perspective, if it is a two-platform meet, usually we need minimally, in just a big open room, mm-hmm. 10,000 square feet is more kind of where we start at. Okay. We could fit a little bit smaller, but when I'm looking at a ballroom, you know, I need 10,000 square feet for a two-platform meet. Right. If I'm running a one-platform meet, you know, you probably could get away more with like five to 8,000 square feet. And the type of meat matters. You know, uh, if you get bigger lifters, you know, bigger name lifters or equipped lifters or heavier lifters, they just need more space than, you know, your local raw lifters. Yes, fat guys need more space. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're running a meat like Nationals or Worlds, you almost, by rule, have to run those at a hotel or a convention center because... Mm-hmm. You know, the organization wants people to be able to stay on location wherever the meet is. Yep. So it makes it easier for people traveling, you know, especially when you think about worlds. You can't set up cots in the, uh, in the new space. It's <laughs> <laughs> right there on the turf. We could. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's just hey, like, for some people, it'd be just like home. He's like, what if you G camp? He's fine. Uh, so for something like worlds, when people are literally coming from out of the country, mm-hmm. you know, you want to try to limit the amount of plausible confusion. So, yeah, you want to have a venue where they can just go to the airport, 
come to the venue and just stay there and obviously travel off as they need to, but yep. they wouldn't necessarily need to rent a car and try to navigate driving in a, a different country. Yep. Similar thing with nationals. Versus something like a state meet, most people are going to be local. Um, so you could rent at a hotel venue like we did last year's state meet or mm-hmm. this year's state meet. Yep. But, you know, a gym or a high school works well for a state meet as well because yep. they would have a big gym available to them. Um Versus, you know, a small local meet, probably your best venue is honestly just a powerlifting gym, mm-hmm. assuming they have adequate space and, you know, ability to maybe move equipment around so that you have an actual spot for a platform and place for people to sit. Right. From there, you know, we think about, you know, what is the size of the facility? Um, how many platforms are you going to run in the meet? And Two, how, five, you know. And how many lifters do you think you're going to have in a meet? And that, that has an impact on some of those questions. Mm-hmm. But when I would go evaluate a venue, I try to picture where things would be in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I try to think about where lifters flow, where they sit, where they would, where they would set up, where they would warm up, you know, how much space do you need for warm-up. Um, then you got to start thinking about things like, does the facility have chairs? Um, no. if, if you listen to our first episode, one of the deals was with, <laughs> with the gym was he was supposed to get chairs and he said he had chairs. Wrong. <laughs> we come that morning and we're setting up aerobic steps and pulling in like benches for people to sit on. For many years at most of my meets, I had to rent chairs. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're running at a gym, most gyms don't have a hundred plus chairs. If you're at a hotel convention center, easy. They almost always have yep. chairs. Um, but if you're running at a gym, they're just not going to have chairs. Now you run it at a uh, a high school, they're going to have bleachers typically, or they'll have chairs. They'll have something. Yeah. yeah, they'll have something for you to sit on. But I rented chairs for many years until here at 2XL, we decided, you know, in lieu of putting $250 into renting chairs every meet, let's just buy them and we'll have them. Yep. We'll so pay, that we can themselves after a couple right, of years, especially yeah. with the amount of meets that we run. Yeah. Um, one of the big considerations is if you are bringing in equipment, like how and where are you going to bring it in? Yep. So if it is say a just a big open space convention center hotel, um, it's easy to set up because there's just big open space, yeah. unlike a gym where you might have to move equipment around, but. How are you going to get that equipment literally into that space? Yep. That's usually one of the first things I look at now is at a hotel venue is like, how can I get the equipment in the door? Because we've had meets where we have to take the equipment completely apart and take the equipment in through just a regular door, which a regular old hallway, and... which is terrible. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Y- your ideal setup is where they would have a big bay door or mm. at least, at the very least, double doors yeah. um, where you can bring things in. Now, th- in the APF, we typically use monoliths, and they are big and heavy and hard to move. Yep. And hard to take apart and put back together. I've done it many times. I've, if you're running, I've, I've moved them many times. <laughs> if you run meets with, say, an ER rack, it's probably, you know, modus operandi to take them apart. And so maybe it's not as hard to get through doors. But when you have giant monoliths, I need a bay door. It's ideal if I can just slide them on a cart, and I don't have to even lean them over to get them in and out of the door. Right. Uh, when we ran the WPO, WPC Can-Am at the Pheasant Run oh, Mega Center. So nice. It was a giant, giant bay door, and it was just a huge open space. So we, was, just, we just backed the truck in. Yeah, we literally moved the truck into the Mega Center so awesome. and just took it off there. Versus when we were moving into Pheasant Run's uh, big ballroom, they still had a big bay door. They didn't, they didn't necessarily want us pulling the truck directly into the ballroom. No, no, they didn't. But it was still easier if you have a lift gate on your truck. So, again, yep. you got to think about, like, 
how are you actually going to physically move that equipment? Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you'll have facilities like a gym that will have equipment right inside of them. And so it's, okay, what do I need to bring extra? Right. Like uh, a high school typically has a weight room somewhere by. That's what we would usually do. But they typically don't have monoliths and competition benches. Maybe they have benches at the very least at a high school venue for a state local meet. We would bring in additional monoliths and plausibly additional competition benches, but realizing that a lot of the lifters would probably just use the racks or whatever the, the high school weight room had. Right. You know, and your high-level lifters use the monoliths, but I don't need to bring in, say, four monoliths for the warm-up room for a two-platform meet no. because a lot of the lifters are perfectly fine using the power racks. But I'll bring in some so that the high-level lifters that are used to using a monolift will have that. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, people laugh about this, but another thing I look at is, like, where are the bathrooms and are they capable of handling... That is a big, big thing. ...the, the load that will yes. be... Uh, Inflicted on it. Inflicted upon the <laughs> venue. I usually tell the venue, like, you probably should have your janitorial staff on, like, extra alert at our meet. I said, we're not going to need a lot from, like, the other staff as much. But yeah. you should set whatever your normal, like, pattern of checking the bathroom. You should probably double that for yeah. our people. Because, I mean, I've seen meets where, like, the bathrooms are just, just including here at 2XL, where the bathrooms are literally just destroyed. Yeah. Toilets, toilet handles, toilet paper everywhere. It's just, it's crazy. I don't know what powerlifters do. At back when I ran meets at Velocity, somebody ripped a stall door off the stall at a meet. I think they might have been trying to hang from their squat suit in there or something. I don't know. Might have hit a new PR in there. You don't know. <laughs> yeah. But here at 2XL, we have, you know, 12,000 square feet of space at 2XL 2.0. Yeah. So, and the way it's set up, we certainly do not have room for two platforms, but we have enough room for one platform you know, snugly fit in here with a lot of people, yep, yep. but we only have two bathrooms on site. And yeah. so that that's an issue. Um, we've, at other venues in here, we've rented porta-potties. Not ideal for the wintertime. Um, and we were lucky that our current location of 2XL was basically in an empty strip mall, and there was a uh, former timeshare location yeah. next to us yeah. that has been vacant for five-plus years, and we were able to rent that out a number of times just for extra space to run weigh-ins and mostly for the extra bathrooms. Because yeah. quite literally, when you have, you know, I was looking at the numbers of the Summer Bash. On Saturday, we probably had 200-plus spectators. Mm-hmm. We had 60-plus lifters. We had 20 staff. So you're talking, you know, in the neighborhood of 300-plus people here just on Saturday. For two bathrooms. For two bathrooms. That just does not work logistically. Nope. nope. Uh, you know, the next thing I think about is, is the facility climate controlled? You know, that's, uh, that's important around here. Yeah. I mean, in Chicago, you could have it as hot and as humid as, as is humanly possible, and it can be as cold as you can imagine. And so based on the time of year that you run the meet, you know, I've seen some meat directors do outdoor meets. I just, gosh, the logistics of Wrong. that. Wrong. No. The logistics of that. Not a chance. I, it's it's a cool idea to run it in your parking lot, you know, bring some attention. But, like, what if it rains? And I know you can get, like, uh, what would you call that? A tarp or whatever, a tent. Or... A tent, yeah. You can get a portable tent. I just, especially if it's really hot or really cold or rainy, I just, I can't bring myself to do that. Um, but, yeah, there are a lot of powerlifting gyms in Chicago that do not have air, actually probably most powerlifting gyms, don't have air conditioning. Yeah, and that's so, a must when you've got, I mean, talk about the Summer Bash. When you've got 300 people coming in and out of a 
at that point, with that many people, a very confined space. Right. And, you know, if you're at a high school gym, you're golden. I mean, the the raw meat, it hasn't been super cold in Chicago the last month. Um, the ra- 50 degrees out right now, yeah. Christmas Eve. At the raw meat, which is in the middle of December, typically, we had to turn the air conditioning on. Yeah. And this is, at that time, it was probably 30 degrees outside. Yep. Because there's just so many people in here sweating, working out. It was just, there's points when, like, the front windows were getting foggy and people were sweating. When Lily and I went uh, to go get pizza uh, in between uh, flights, she even commented that there was steam coming off of my head as we're walking from here to the uh, the extra bathrooms right where the pizza was at because I mean that's that is the the range you could have here in Chicago so yeah. you might think if you're going to run a meet in a gym in Chicago if they don't have AC maybe the summertime's not the best time to run it maybe you should do it in the spring or the fall and the winter in Chicago you have to think about okay if you have to move equipment is there going to be snow on the ground when you're trying to move yeah. that I've always avoided running meets where I had to move equipment in the months of November to February, just because there's a high probability, not a high probability, but there's a, there's a, there's a probability that you're going to have a snowstorm. And I can only imagine trying to move. Moving a mono and or multiple monos in the snow. Fuck that. No, you know, and the next thing that comes to is, you know, your dollars and cents. And we're going to talk more about this probably in a, another question, I'm sure. But Mm -hmm. you know, how much are you willing to pay for the space, mm-hmm. and you, you got to think about you, you got to think about your budget. And I, even with my first meet, I sat down, I talked with Ernie and Maris, and I said, you know, what are the costs I need to know? And they kind of went through things with me, and I created a really, really simple Excel document and figured out what's my break-even point. And mm-hmm. if you're not someone that's in business, maybe that doesn't make any sense. But like, at what point, how many lifters would I need with my fixed? And variable expenses, the expenses that change don't change, mm-hmm. and the expenses that change based on the number of lifters I have, at what point would I break even and not lose money on it? Yep. Because there's certainly a point when there's certain expenses, like if you have to move equipment, you're going to move the equipment pretty much no matter whether there's 20 lifters or 40 lifters Correct. if it's a one-platform meet. Yep. Now, when you start getting to two platforms, you start to duplicate some of those. But you have to think about, like, how much can I pay based on what the budget of my meat is? If it's going to be a 30-lifter meat and you're paying five grand for the space, you're not going to make any money. You're going no. to lose money, most no. likely. So you have to think about those things. One of the reasons why we typically run nationals, worlds, international meets at a hotel convention center space is that now you have some leverage with the hotel because if it's a nice hotel and if it's a reasonable room rate, a lot of people are going to stay on site. Mm -hmm. And thus, as the event organizer, you can guarantee a certain amount of rooms with the hotel. Yep. Hotels are in the business of filling rooms at the end of the day. All day. All day. That's what they're in the business in, like ballrooms, convention center space. Like those are all just ways to fill rooms, basically. Correct. Correct. So you have a lot more leverage on what rate you pay and what you have to do to get your, you know, ballroom convention center space if you can guarantee a certain amount of rooms. And that's something I learned really early on from Ernie Franz and Amy Jackson when I started to help running with some some of the bigger meets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next thing you start, start to have to think about logistics of like, when do you have access to the space? So let's say you're using a gym. Yeah. You know, if they have their regular members coming in, like at what point can you come start setting up? Right. When we used to run meets at Velocity, my 
former, former work, we had the basketball court where we ran the meets. But on Friday nights, the basketball coach at the time would sometimes have his practices go until 10 p.m. So mm-hmm. we had to wait to set up the platform until 10 p.m. I remember Jackie, like as soon as 10 p.m. hit and the basketball coach was done, Jackie was just like grabbing tarps and stuff and started to throw them down whether the basketball coach was done or (laughs) not. Whether they were off the court or not. And it was just a subtle hint that like, it's time to go. We got to set up the meets. But I remember many meets when I was setting up from 10 p.m. till midnight the night before the meet, which is definitely not optimal. Oh, so you don't want to be sitting at a venue until 1 a.m. screwing in stuff to the platform like we've seen happen? Generally not. (laughs) And then the other thing is like, like, is there a time frame in which you have to be out? Most of the time, when you rent a space, you've got it for the day, so you've got it till midnight. Right. But I was talking with uh, Howard, and we're right now negotiating a contract for a space for the 2020 WPC Worlds. Mm-hmm. You really have to look at contracts very carefully. Uh, about ten years ago, Amy Jackson ran the AWPC Worlds in Oakbrook uh, at a hotel, the DoubleTree. Mm-hmm. And we'd run a couple meets there. I was providing the equipment, so I was helping. And we had two adjacent rooms. So one room, two kind of longer skinny rooms. One room was for warm-ups, and literally right across the hallway was the room for the platform. Amy had discussed what the needs were for the meet, et cetera, et cetera. It it seemed like everything was fine, but apparently someone didn't check the contract very carefully because the warm-up room was only scheduled to be for Friday and Saturday and not for Sunday. It was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday meet. Oh, boy. And so the hotel comes to them and said, oh, we need you out of the ballroom tonight. This is on Saturday. And Amy's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, yeah. the meet, our meet runs three days. And I'm like, oh, well, the contract says you're out of the, that room on Saturday. Oh, my. And so negotiations back and forth. It's, nobody was taking possession of that space on Sunday. They just need to set up for a Monday right. conference. And so Jackie negotiated with the hotel convention organizer, Mm -hmm. okay, give us till noon. So at least we can get our squat warm-ups in in the warm-up room. Then myself and Team Stone, I was lifting in the meet, by the way, moved the monoliths to the hallway. We moved the bench and deadlift warm-ups to the back of the room where the competition was taking place. Mm -hmm. And they set up, you know, one of those fake walls. Yep. And bench and deadlift warm-ups were in the back of the room. Fake wall, you say? (laughs) (laughs) So that that was the solution because that next group needed to be in there, and the contract said we had to be out of there, you know, Saturday at midnight. So wow. that was that was the compromise. But you know, it, it made very clear to Jack and I that every time you have a, a contract with a hotel, read every line of that, every piece of fine print, because there's just, there could be something, right? And you know, maybe. One of the more important things to consider is, like, where is the facility? Is it close to you if you're moving equipment? And yep. then is it in a place where lifters are? Like, lifters are willing to travel, certainly. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to run a meet in Chicago, in the Chicago area, you probably should try to stay within Chicago or the suburbs. Like, I don't know that it makes sense to, say, run a meet in Rockford, which is quasi-Chicago. And yeah. you'd probably have a decent number of lifters that would travel to Chicago or travel to Rockford for a meet, but you would lose lifters if you ran a meet in Rockford versus if you ran it almost anywhere in any other suburb. Yeah. If you run it, not, not a knock on Rockford. Just no. Yeah. Just what this. Yeah. Just logistics. It's an hour and a half away. I mean, if you yeah. live in the South suburbs, it's plausibly two hours away. Right. Right. And you look where the populations of lifters are. Like we haven't run a lot of meets in the Northern suburbs because it's just expensive up there. Mm-hmm. 
But if we ran a meet in the northern suburbs, you'd pull a lot of Wisconsin lifters in. And yep. We do anyways because there aren't that many meets run by the APF in Wisconsin, if any, in the last 10-plus years. Yeah, I don't think there's, there's very, very few. So Wisconsin. lifters from especially the southern part of, of you know Milwaukee and Wisconsin, they're often willing to travel down to Chicago for meets. Right. So you got to think about those type of things. Like, I'm not going to go run a meet in central Illinois and expect all the Chicago lifters to come. Right, right. For sure. Uh, so so we've talked about, you know, the venues. We've talked about what type of meets. Uh, you're not a one-man gang when it comes to this. Can you talk about, you know, scheduling staff and how you kind of put that together? Sure, yeah. I do think that is as important as any aspect of what we're going to talk about is mm-hmm. the staff because it's – I truly, although sometimes I'd like to be able to do everything myself because I know I can always count on myself for the most part, yeah. uh, it is impossible to run a meet by yourself and you have to have good people to rely on. Yeah. And that is where, again, when I first kind of thought of the idea of starting a team, it definitely made sense. I mean, I wanted a team to train with. Um, I wanted to kind of set my own mark. But from a running meet perspective, it made sense to me to have a team of people, of my friends and teammates, to kind of pull from for when I ran meets. Right. Got to call some favors every now and then. Right. Uh, You know, it's helpful for us because, first of all, we do have a pool of local referees in -hmm. Chicago. Some that actually probably at least half at this point that I have gone out myself and recruited and certified. Mm -hmm. And so they're either people on my team or people that I know from other gyms. Um, and that's actually one thing I try to do is I try to recruit people from other gyms and teams so that it doesn't seem like it's just, you know, the 2XL team stone meet, even though a lot of the workers will be from here. Mm-hmm. But I, I like to have people from other gyms because it, you know, it does in some ways even pull people from those gyms because they say, oh, yeah, I'm helping at that meet. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people have a little bit more, you know, connection or comfort with it's someone of their own yep. helping with the meet. For sure. We have a lot of older referees in Illinois because Ernie Franz ran meets for so many years. Some of those referees don't necessarily want to work every single meet we have. In fact, no referee wants to work every meet we have for the most part. Right. So, But I do try. I have a list, and I try to at least annually at least get every referee, ask them to work a meet. And I typically try not, unless people want to. There's some referees that, like, they're retired, mm-hmm. and if there's a big meet, they want to work the whole meet. But for people here and for ones that I know maybe don't, you know, want to work all the time, they're willing if you ask them, but they don't want to work, you know, a three-day meet. Right. I try to just, you know, not schedule people for all three days of a meet. And so I try to pull so I have a big pool of people to choose from. So when you have a big two-platform, two-day meet like the state meet, I've got not just the three, four, five referees from Team Stone and 2XL. Right. I've got other people to pull from when I need them. Right. You know, I'm always looking to certify new referees is one of the things because people... Quick plug there. Yeah, people come and go. I'll pay your fee. It's 10 bucks, but I'll pay it for you. One of the reasons why is for those big meets, um, and you need six referees plus, really, and we'll talk about that, but mm-hmm. you need minimally six referees for a two-platform meet. And if you don't have people working multiple days, that's 12. Yep. And that's just the minimum. But additionally... Technically, you're supposed to have a referee working weigh-ins. You can get away with it at a smaller meet, um, but technically the people weighing people in are supposed to be referees. Mm -hmm. And it is very helpful if your expediters, your computer people, and your announcers 
are referees because if you're a referee, you know the rules. Right. There's things like the fact that you can't change your opener more than once. Right. There's things like the fact that you can't change your squat or bench second and third attempts once you've given them. You know, we had Bain's daughter Lily helping a couple times and mm-hmm. meets done a nice job and I think she kind of starts to know the rules now since she's lifted and yep. done it a couple of times but if I were to just grab a random 13 year old girl and say hey yeah. you know hey take these numbers take them to the table that's not a uh, that's not a super challenging job to do but if you don't have an understanding of things like oh someone needs to come to you within a minute yep. and somebody cannot change their attempt after it's, they've it's given it in kilos right it's got to be in kilos things she, like because she's had to correct people on that too yeah so it, it is helpful if you have you know, knowledgeable people at the table, because even though they probably shouldn't, people come up to the table and the announcer and ask them questions. I normally tell them, that's one of the reasons why at our meets, I try to have myself or Howard not scheduled to do anything. Right. Because you almost always need a question answer. And if you're going to the person scoring or the table (laughs) or the announcer, to ask questions, it's going to slow down the flow of the meat, and they're going to get upset, and they're asking, like, well, where's the bathrooms? Yep. It's like, you know, why couldn't you have gone to the admissions people to ask that question? I actually tell people, you have to have a catheter. We don't have bathrooms. <laughs> but that's also seen as gears, so don't let them see it on the platform. So, You know, one of the other things you are very big with meats is you need spotters and loaders, and you need people who are competent at spotting and loading. Please repeat that. <laughs> you need people who are competent at spotting and loading. That is, I, I'm going to... Dovetail off that for a second. That is a huge pet peeve I have. And this was before I started spotting and loading regularly at meets, watching the shit show that can be spotters and loaders with misloads. With, and, and this is not a knock on any particular federation or anything like that. I've seen it across the board. That There is a, such a huge piece of the meat that is lost with the spotters and loaders because you don't want to see them. You don't want them to be a part of the action until you absolutely need them. And right. then you absolutely need them. So you, to, to reiterate, competent spotters and loaders are just a crucial part of running a good meet. And I will say that finding spotters and loaders is not easy. It's not a job mm. that most people want to do. It's not wrong. I am lucky that for pretty much almost every meet I've run, every big meet, I've uh, usually gotten some high school boys from Rudy's Gym in mm-hmm. Joliet. Yep. Rudy Rudiger of the movie fame, the brother of the Rudy in the movies, yes, yes. runs a gym, Rudy's Gym, mostly a high school football player, you know, athlete gym, mm-hmm. but some powerlifters as well. Yep. He usually, I'll just actually text him or call him and say, I need this number of spotters on these days, and he will just send me a crew of guys. Yeah, I, I actually think that's pretty dope that he's able to do that. That's, and that's he, really cool. I, he doesn't get anything from it. Um, I've said to him, you know, if you want me to give you a kickback or whatever, he kind of sees it as his way of, A, giving back to the sport because he's been in powerlifting for 40-plus years, mm-hmm. and B, um, he, I think he likes his boys to go and work. Yeah. Like, I think he likes them to go work. He likes them to work hard. For a high school boy, I mean, hey, 100 bucks cash plus T-shirt plus food is not bad for a day of work. It's really not when you really don't have anything else going on. That's pretty nice. You know, it's... It's cash, and it's tax-free. Yep. Now, one of the reasons why some other federations can have trouble getting spotters and loaders, they don't pay them. Mm-hmm. And that is one oh, thing. Or they claim they're going to pay them, and then they don't. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that is a shot at one particular federation, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, from the time that I first started running meets, Ernie Franz always paid me mm-hmm. when I helped him with meets, even though I, I didn't necessarily want it. I just said, I'll volunteer. But he said, no, we always pay the staff. If you want to take that money and you know buy something in the gym, go down to the shop and buy something. And a right. couple of times I did that. Yeah. I'd go buy some extra wrist wraps or whatever. But he taught me early on, like, you know, grease the wheels. Yep. Make sure you pay people whether they want it or not. And so there, I have a few referees that will just flat out refuse to take cash, and they just say put it towards the gym, which is fine. I'm not going to, like, force you to take the money. But usually I try to pay all the referees, all the table staff, all the spotters and loaders cash. Mm-hmm. I realize this, now the spotters and loaders, they probably don't have a checking account, so it makes no sense to write them a check. Right. But, like, you know, the adults that help with me, the announcers, the table staff, the referees, they're not doing it because – they're doing it to make money. They're doing it because they want to give back to the sport, yeah. because they like it, and because they're helping me, because they want to be able to help me. I always feel like if I have cash, it's like it's almost like free money. It's like, ah, I can just spend it on whatever. I can buy some drinks. I can sure. go buy something I want. If you write somebody a check, which sometimes we have to do, but if you write somebody a check, it's like most of the time it just gets deposited right into their account. Yeah. And and for me personally, this is something that you know Lily and I had a, a long chat about after the last meet that she helped out at because she she wanted to help on Sunday, but she had her own gymnastics meet the sure. next day, and because we were discussing what she was going to do for 2020 when it came to powerlifting, and I basically told her like you're not going to Worlds, you're not coming with me and Mom to Ireland. She's like, cool, I'm going to Nationals, right? And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know because you know I got to get a plane ticket to Baton Rouge. Uh, I'm already going down there. She's like, yeah, just get me a plane ticket and I'll pay for the rest. Because she has saved her money from working the meets. I'm like, I can't argue with that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, and I know I have a client who here who helps me with a lot of meets who makes a good dollar at her job. Yep. She she has no need for an extra eighty hundred dollars cash. But she used to referee Olympic lifting meets. Mm-hmm. They literally never paid them ever. She so bogus. She drove herself out to the Arnold Classic, bought her own hotel room, worked all day at the Arnold Classic at the Olympic lifting meet, did not get paid a dime. Um, and, and I say, like, from a technical perspective, if, like, you know, Mr. Taxman came and asked me, mm-hmm. really what we're doing is we're just giving people per diem. Yeah. We're not, I mean, they're, not emplo- they're not employees. We're just giving them reimbursement for food, mm-hmm. gas, whatever. So we're giving them per diem. Yep. But, you know, she likes working the meats from that perspective because she likes helping. And she's like, oh, it's just some free cash in my pocket that I can, you know, just use for whatever, basically. Yep. You know, and what what else do you need? You got referees, you got spotters, loaders. You need at least an announcer, and that is probably one of the more challenging jobs. It can be. Especially when you've got a two-platform meet. There's only really a few people that we have on our team that are capable of announcing a two-platform meet. Uh, Bain, I don't know that you've tried it. You could probably try it. Haven't haven't done it yet. Yeah, it's 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 much harder than one platform. I can imagine. Um, Jackie Stone can do it. Jen Gimmel can do it. I can do it. But it's not an easy job. You really have to be focused, and you need good table staff. Just put me and Barcine on the mic and see what happens. <laughs> can only imagine how much fun that would be. You know, we've got uh, – you need someone to run the computer. Yep. And you need – sometimes you need an expediter. It depends. You know, at the meets at 2XL, it's just this, the way it's structured at our current location. We didn't always want people to come to the table because it just got too crowded. So we'll yeah. have what basically an attempt taker, an expediter. At some meets, we'll have someone sitting at the table and taking attempts, although mm-hmm. you've got some people like Amy Jackson who would almost rather not have somebody helping her mm-hmm. because she would rather just 
have it all under her control. Stacy from our team, like she would almost rather not have somebody helping her mm-hmm. take attempts. She'd rather just take it herself, do the computer. It's all in one area. Um, but you need people like that. And then for your spotters and loaders, I typically try to have at least a adult or somebody who's kind of in charge of the spotters. I call it a platform manager, like Bain or like one of our members, Joey. Or Detman. Detman. Detman is a great platform manager. Right. You need somebody that knows how to spot and load. And the high school boys do a great job, but they're high school kids. So yep. they, they do need a leader. And it's also helpful if you have a big, strong dude to backspot squats. I mean, that is, that's also one that's, that's important to have. It is very much so. And lifters will even say that, too. They really appreciate having that one kind of the lead spotter as they see it. Um, that's important. Even if, they, even if the high school boys could do as good a job, I think the lifters just feel more comfortable in their mind if you have somebody like Bain or Detman yep. you know, standing behind them who they know has spotted big squats before yep. and you know, kind of has that just little, little extra of comfort, uh, feeling of comfort, and it's not like, oh, you got a bunch of high school kids yep. spotting, even though the high school kids typically do a great job. They do. So, um, so the next thing you think about is, you know, are you taking the door? And that's one of the things you think about with the facility is mm-hmm. sometimes we've negotiated with the facility. Part of their rent is taking the door and the door can be fairly profitable. That is something we often did with the high schools. We would give them the door in exchange for the space. Mm-hmm. But if you, you're taking the door, you need somebody there. And that is as far as the profitability of the meat, not the logistics of the running the meat, right. but the profitability of the meat, that's probably one of the most important jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, because often, you know, like you find, if you talk to like people that run like music shows or live events, mm-hmm. often where you, they make their money is on apparel yeah. and on concessions. Yep. It's often like just getting people there is like the break even and where they make money is on you know, selling T-shirts yep. for the band. It's it's the experience of being there that is where they, they get it. Right. So you do need somebody there if you're selling T-shirts, and that's something to think about whether you want to have T-shirts or not. But you need someone assertive and competent at the door. You know, you need someone, if you're taking admissions from everybody who's not a lifter, which typically what we do now, you know, you need someone to assertively, you know, not just let people walk by and only pay if they ask. You need someone right. that says, hey, are you a lifter? Oh, let me check you off on the list. Let me give you a stamp yep. nicely, you know, because you don't want the first experience people walk in the door to be a dickhead. Yeah. But you want to be... That's why I don't do the table. <laughs> <laughs> but you need someone assertive that will make sure that everyone who walks to the door is either a lifter or pays, if that's how you're working it. Right. From a staffing perspective, as the meat director, um, I typically try not to schedule myself if I can for any particular job. Even though I really enjoy announcing, I don't get to do it that often because I need to be available to be the fill-in, you know, to go put out fires, to go answer questions. Yeah, so you're you're the janitor basically the the whole weekend. I need to be able to, around lunchtime, be able to fill in so that somebody can take a break. Yep. If we have a big meet like the raw meet, we basically did not take a break for the lifters. Yeah, we, man, we whipped through that thing on Saturday. <laughs> and that was a lot of lifters, uh, but part of the reason was we really didn't take any breaks. We had enough staff, and that's part of it. You always, We always have some extras. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and Howard at Bigger Meats, my business partner Howard, I typically don't schedule him or I to be doing any particular job. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the day, you know, Howard, if he's running the live stream, it seems like there's almost always some issue there. So I I usually want to allow him to get that going if we have it. And then he and I can just fill in at lunchtime. One of the things I said that when I 
first started running meets is that I want to be able to do every job in the meet. So I've done every job. I've, when I first started helping at meets, I spotted and loaded. Mm-hmm. I became a referee so I could referee. I did not understand how scoring worked, so I learned how to do the scoring. Mm-hmm. When we started running the program, I learned how to do the, the scoring program. I learned how to announce. Um, every job I know how to do. I may not be the best at it, mm-hmm. but I could fill in basically for everybody. And I always plan, and this happened at the Raw meet, I always plan on at least one or two people not showing up. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, another reason why I try not to schedule myself because, you know, it's something where I want to make sure that there's a fudge factor if somebody gets sick. Because that, I mean, gosh, I had a meet, a Raw meet a couple of years ago where I think I had like three referees call in sick. Jeez. I was sicker than a dog, like sicker than you could even believe. Sure. Um, uh, our business partner at the time, um, had just had surgery, and he was judging with his arm in a, not even a sling, like one of those holders. Uh, I literally, between refereeing and helping at the meet, I was laying in the other gym, puking Jeepers. some of the time. My wife, Jackie, was also sicker than the dog, puking, and still helping at the meet. That was unprecedented, but, I mean, people you get... Stu- people still get, got a plan for it. People get sick. It happens. Yep, yep. That's, uh, wow, that's crazy. So, so we've talked about again some of, a lot of these logistics, and now let's get into some of the nitty gritty. How do you go about collecting registrations? I mean, not all these lifters are going to be walking into Lombard and handing you an envelope, right? That's an interesting question. A uh, way you phrased it is because rewind 15, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. a lot of meets allowed registrations to the day of the meet. And some directors would talk about how they had no idea how many lifters would come because they would get half their registrations the day of the event. That's terrifying. That just does not fit my personality no. in the least no, bit. No, I can feel myself getting anxious just thinking about that. So from my very first meet on, I set an entry deadline. And I it, in those days, I would accept late registrations, one or two. But it's almost never that I've allowed. And I put that in the entry forms. I never allow registrations at the weigh-ins the day of the meet. Yeah. So... Quick little side story. Second summer bash, big meet, 90 lifters, full freaking day. We yep. did not know what we were doing at that meet. It probably went till 8, 9 o'clock at night. Oof. Um, we ran the meet by hand with scorecards. We scored the meet separately on like some, you know, fixed up Excel sheet Jackie had come up with. This was before the computer scoring system we use now. So we knew it was going to be a long freaking day. Yep. Some dude shows up to Wands the day before the meet and he says, I need to register. And I said, Excuse me? He said, oh, I need, I need to register for the meet. I said, registration's over. I said, the entry deadline was two weeks ago. Right. And the meet is full. He's like, oh, well, well, I, well I came all the way from Texas. <laughs> I'm like, so let me get this straight. You booked, a, you booked an airline. You booked a hotel. You didn't think that you needed to register for the meet? He's like, oh, well, I've always registered the day of the meet. I'm like, well, I, it says right in the entry form, we do not accept registrations at the weigh-ins or the day of the meet. I was nice and let him go ahead and do bench only yeah. because he'd come all that way, but he was not happy with me. But at the same time, how could one plan for all the things we're going to talk about and all the things we have talked about mm-hmm. if we don't know who's going to be there and how many people are going to be there and what weight class they're in? And I'm sorry. Like, in, in the years of now, you know, where there is email, there is text messaging, there is all this connection. This world is very, very small. You can't tell me that guy could have sent you an email and say, hey, for some archaic reason, I am not able to do anything but register the day of the meet. He couldn't somehow reach out to you? I'd never heard of the guy, never seen him before. Smoke signal, 
you know, yeah. snail mail, something. This really? Is, this is before the days of social media. This was 2005. But I certainly had email and a yeah. phone. I mean, I, I mean, he, he found the registration and the meat somehow, right? Right. Uh, so so that, that just blows my mind that you couldn't just be decent and not. Because to, to me, he's the douchebag. Yeah. And I said it, not you. Anyway. <laughs> so in those days, though, everything was collected via a paper entry form. You know, you put a paper, you needed to put it on the website, but people downloaded a paper entry form. Or I, we, had a, we had an actual mailing list where Amy and I would mail out physical, through wow. snail mail, entry forms to the entire, you know, mailing list of Illinois Powerlifting. Mm-hmm. And I would enter everything by hand onto scorecards. I'm not saying enter it with a computer. Yeah. I took it from the paper entry form and I would write it myself on the scorecards. So you wrote all the fun facts about people on the uh, scorecards? I don't <laughs> even know that I did that back then because I was trying to limit things. Yeah. I did have, you know, an Excel sheet where I tracked the, you know, the money and the expenses and that kind of thing. Um, but in the first few meets, we actually scored the meets by hand. Jeez. Eventually, I adopted PayPal because PayPal even 10 years ago wasn't, 15 years ago, wasn't terribly hard to use. Right. But that was just a way to get the money without people, people were starting to not have checks anymore. Yeah. Plus, when you use checks, there's always the probability that somebody's got a bounce check, which yep. has happened, you know, not a lot, half dozen times. Um, still, some Still pain. Some meet directors, for that reason, would only accept cashier's checks or money orders, but then you're adding an extra layer yeah. You know, you want to try to eliminate the barriers to someone entering your meet. Yeah, uh, as, as frictionless uh, as possible. Right. So when we started 2XL, uh, we we bought or procured a point-of-sale system for our scheduling for personal training. Mm-hmm. It includes a, quote, enrollment feature, which I don't know what it's actually designed for, but we use it for our events. It, I think it's designed for, like, if you're running, like, an eight-week class okay. at your fitness center or gym. Um, we use it for, you know, one-day events. And people can pay online, and it creates a list for me. The only thing it doesn't do, which is annoying, it doesn't have a way for me to create a custom form for people to fill out, you know, not the regular information. You know, like their, it has, you know, their name, date of birth, mm-hmm. address, but it doesn't have weight class, division, oh, gotcha. all that stuff. So that's why, in addition to the point-of-sale system, I will email people a Google Docs document. Now, the nice thing about Google Docs is that it will automatically download that form into it's not Excel, but into Google's version of Excel, a spreadsheet, right, right. which makes it very easy to transfer that onto what Jackie Stone showed me how to do is to use Excel to track everything, to use a mail merge to create the scorecards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny. I used to take the paper entries mm-hmm. and I would literally go through them by hand and I would count like how many AAPF lifters we had. So Jeez. I knew how many. Uh, so I knew how many drug tests I needed. Oh, I would man. literally count through them, and then I would write that down. <laughs> I would, you know, it, it was literally like physically counting things before I figured out, you know, how to use macros. And I, to be fair, I don't know that I figured it out. Jackie Stone just made them for me. Yeah. And I continued to use the same Excel document with multiple tabs. Macros, and multiple pivot tables, et cetera. Right. And that's how we do it now. It's basically all, autom- all automated. Um, it's all online. Uh, I don't even like getting paper entries anymore, even though I still do them for meets like the state meet and nationals because you still have a, a contingent of older lifters that are not going to pay online yeah. and they want to send in their physical entry form. Uh, but most of the time now people just enter online and then they fill out the Google Docs document afterward. Yep. Th- that two-step process does create some issues because 
millennials don't check their emails, they don't check their voicemails, and the only thing they check is their Instagram DMs. Yep, and so, if you're not the opposite gender sliding in, then they're not right. checking that either. Right, so sometimes that is difficult. I wish our online system allowed it all in one. Um, not what it is for right now. Right. You know, and when you're collecting registrations, that's kind of when you have to think about... The nice thing about making the entry form for some ways is that, like, you have to think about all the details of the meet because you have to have it on the entry form. Yeah. So you have to have the location. You have to have the times. You have to have the weigh-ins. That stuff has to be set in advance. So it allows you to kind of think about all those things that you need to set right. so that when lifters ask the questions like where or when the weigh-ins, like, it's all on the entry form, whether yep. it's online or a paper version. Um, they're still going to ask it. Yeah, they're still going to ask, <laughs> right. Sometimes I just uh, – if you ever use that – website that's like uh it's the first letters of let me google that for you.com yep I, i've all thought about sending that to lifters like googling like you know way in <laughs> summer bash 16 you know Jeez. the next thing you think about is like do you want to sell t-shirts because mm-hmm. if you want to sell them the best way to ensure that people will buy them and that you know you'll order an a correct amount is to have people pre-order them. Yep. So include it with your registration. Some There's some meets that, like, everybody gets a T-shirt. I kind of always have taken the philosophy of do things a la carte, like don't include it, because yeah. some people don't care about a T-shirt, so why buy them one? Right. Like, they'll take it if it's free, but if I would... If they're free, it's always included in the registration. Sure, so. right, exactly. So why not just make the entry fee a little bit lower, and then if you want to buy a, a pre-order T-shirt, it'll be 15 before, and it's 20 at the meet, and that usually, what that allows me to do... When I sell T-shirts in advance, that allows me to have enough T-shirts for the staff mm-hmm. so that usually the pre-orders pay for that. So at least I've broken even on T-shirts. Right. And then anything you sell at the meet, Jackie Stone usually used the the formula of doubling the pre-orders, and that would include the staff mm-hmm. and extras to sell. And that usually has worked pretty well for a lot of meets. Nice, nice. So, all right, so we've gone through a lot of this stuff, and you've got your money, we've got the venue, we've got everything set. Now, once people have completed the meet, they want to be able to tell everybody else about it. How do you choose the awards so they can get those in their hands? Yeah, you know, awards are interesting because I personally don't care that much about awards. But okay. a lot of lifters do, especially if they haven't done a lot of meets. Yes. And younger younger lifters probably, you know, are bigger on awards than – and when I say younger, not just age younger, but like newer to lifting versus mm-hmm. more experienced lifters. Lifters that have been doing meets for years, it's like, you know, they've got a bunch of trophies and they're just – sitting in a box in their basement. But if you've only done one or two meets, you know, there's some value in having Mm -hmm. a memento of your accomplishment of doing those meets. Right. So how do I choose awards? You know, first of all, I have a local guy. Oh, you got a guy. I got a guy, uh, John Smoker, who on the side does awards. I've worked with him actually ever since my first meet. Nice. The nice thing about the way that I have it worked with John is that he, A, brings the awards to the venue, Mm -hmm. which is a service in and of itself. Because when I've had to bring the awards, it's even medals, which don't take up much space. It is a pain. Yeah. B, even though he doesn't – he's not the lowest price point per award. But if we have – he'll bring extra awards if we have a couple extra lifters, say, change weight class or somebody enter – we allow somebody to enter late. Yeah. So he'll bring a couple extras if we need it, but he'll also take back and restock if we don't use some of the awards. So to me, that's nice. That is a ni- that's the nicest feature of it. And he'll he does so many other meets mm-hmm. that now sometimes I have to pay a little bit of that. Like if he creates a custom plate, say, well, you got to pay for those custom plates, but I could reuse the plaque or the trophy or 
the whatever. Right. But uh, that's the nice thing of having somebody like that. Uh, as far as like how I choose the actual award, I think about what type of meat it is. Mm-hmm. For a nationals and world, you're almost always going to do a medal mm-hmm. because people are traveling. They don't want a big award with them. It just makes sense. It's just standard. Yeah, bringing daggers through customs isn't very fun. Right. For like a local meet, I usually alternate between things like a plaque, some kind of trophy, and occasionally I'll use medals at local mm-hmm. meets. But a lot of it's going to be some of those physical awards, not a medal. Mm-hmm. Lately, what I try to do is I try to incorporate the meat logo. Mm-hmm. The meat logo is usually created through our T-shirt company. They have an art department, so it's really good. So if you ever, you know, see what we have for our T-shirts and our awards, um, the Graphic Edge out of Iowa, along with input from Jackie Stone, usually creates those those designs. And then I'll try to use that same design on both the awards, if possible, as well as the certificates which I give out. If you know, if I need ideas, I'll look online. I'll just you can know you can do just a search of powerlifting awards or awards like mm-hmm. Crown Awards is like the Walmart of awards, and they've got okay. just every type of award you can think of. And sometimes I'll go on there. I won't buy from them. I have, but I won't necessarily buy from them. But I'll send you know an, an idea to Smoker, and he'll see if he has a, a number of different suppliers, and he'll see if he can get award you mm-hmm. know similar to that. Sure. You know, from there you have to think about. Uh, best lifter awards. How many are you going to give, and what are they going to be? Swords. Always swords. Uh, you know, I haven't done swords in a while. I should do swords again. Uh, the, the belts are dope, though. The belts are very nice. We've done the belts. They're very expensive, mm-hmm. you know, way more expensive than other ones. So you got to think about, again, can your budget afford that? Um, I mean, not that I'm not willing to get pay money to get nice awards, but... I think if you save things that are more expensive, like a belt for a bigger meat, I think it means something more than like if I gave belts away at every meet, it was yeah. like, you know, kind of loses its prestige and value versus if I give belts away at, you know, the Can-Am and at Nationals and at Worlds, yeah, yeah. That, there's, some, there's some definitive more value to that. If we're giving away trophies for the regular awards, I'll try to do like a bigger trophy. Um, if we're giving away medals, you know, some kind of big physical award, mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll do the smaller ones that are more custom, like some kind of like acrylic award, yeah. like your, your corporate kind of things with the meat logo incorporated into it. And usually those are going to be more expensive than your, your regular award. I think I've gotten, I've gotten plaques as best lifter. I've gotten the acrylic. I got that. That, that one was really nice, actually, at um, Nationals 2018. Uh, but then, yeah, I think generally speaking, every meet I've done since 2016 has just been a medal. Yeah, uh, the bigger meets are going to be a lot of medals. They just it makes sense to give away medals to me. Yeah, if you're traveling, yeah. if you're traveling, it makes a lot of sense. And for best lifters, you have to think about like how many best lifters are you going to give out, and in what categories. I try to look at which categories have at least ten people in them. That's mm-hmm. kind of like my my baseline. So if you're wondering like where do I come up with the best lifters, from there I try to you know you you clearly s- split men and women. Mm-hmm. I split equipment categories, mm-hmm. and then from there, I'll split additionally as needed. You know, split APF, AAPF. Mm-hmm. Then you can start to maybe split into, like, age categories and things yep. like that. It also depends on how the meet is set up. If you have, say, open on one day and masters and age groups on another day, so that I, I prefer to make it to where everyone is at least eligible for a best lift award, even if it, you know, I don't have every split of every category. Right. The exception would be, like, 
you know, if there's a bench only where there's only like two females, it's like, you know, sorry, I can't do a female best lifter award with two or three females only. Right, right, exactly. But in full power, especially, you know, we would try to make it to where everyone's eligible for an award. So if you have age groups on a separate day, you know, we'll have a separate teen junior award. We'll have a separate master's award. Right. Uh, but the best lifters, you know, those are something that draw people, even if they don't win them, people like seeing, you know, cool best lifter awards and it, it adds value to your meet. It does. hundred percent it does. So an Eric Stone creation going back to, gosh, what meet was that? Maybe the 2006, 2007 junior nationals that I ran uh, would be certificates. Mm-hmm. And at that meet, it was Jackie Stone going through the the uh, the results and literally writing them all out by hand. Wow. And she said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> so, I got to give Jackie credit. She's been very patient with you as this thing has evolved. I mean, and Jackie truly is, if she listens to this. She is the kind of the... Please listen, Jackie. Yes, yeah. We'll see if she ever listens to this. She truly is kind of the engine that has run a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not... She's more of the idea person. I'm more of the administrator, manager, implementer. like The the executioner. Right, yeah. (laughs) She's the one that's come up with a lot of the processes that I still use for meets. Mm -hmm. You know, things like the Excel sheets and... For certificates, she showed me how to do a, a mail merge. And mm-hmm. so literally, I take the the results, and I just do a mail merge of the data that's already there on the Excel document and just, you know, populate it into a certificate and print those out. Now, right. we, you need a really good printer for that to be able to do that. We had to buy a laser printer mm-hmm. so that those could print out quickly enough, Easier. quickly enough, so that you could hand them out at awards. Uh, an inkjet never would have worked. No, and that's what sure. we used in the past. For sure. Um and then, you know, how you score the how you score the meet is going to have an impact on what awards you can afford or will do. Like if you do every age and weight category, you know, you're going to have more awards than if say you do, you know, big categories or if you do it via coefficient, right. and you're going to have less awards. I prefer to do smaller meets, you know, with coefficients at least in the age categories so that there's a little bit more competition and so that not everyone gets a first place award because it's supposed to be a competition. It's supposed to be but that has an impact on what you can afford as well. Sure, sure. All right. Got to ask the big question, the one everybody's thinking about. I mean, we all know the answer, but do you actually make any money running meets? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, not not billions and billions, oh, as okay. Bain would say. Okay. Uh, I, I guess the short answer is yes, we make money. I mean, okay. I don't think anybody would would run meets or put on meets if at least they didn't lose money. Yeah, I, I, what's interesting to me is people can sometimes get kind of shitty when they realize you're making money when they participate in something. I generally don't think that that is the case in powerlifting, but I've I've seen that in other cases where people get really upset about that for some crazy reason. In powerlifting, people can get upset when it is perceived that the meat director is cutting corners or is running things in a way that is only to make money, I fair. think. And I think that's fair. Now, we try to make a fine line of you know both providing an optimal experience for the lifters from a venue perspective from a uh, running of the meat perspective from an award perspective while at the same time keeping an eye on you know maximizing profits as much as we can yeah uh, so yes we make money There's as any big corporation would do <laughs> yeah right big corporation <laughs> what there's my wife and i talk about power lifter math and what lifters will do yep well, they will take the number of lifters mm-hmm. and multiply it by the entry entry fee, and they think that's the amount of money we make. I can tell you. Wrong. <laughs> I can tell you that if there's 200 lifters and we charged, you know, $80, you 
that's not the amount of money we make. I no. can tell you there is definitively more cost we, we involved in that. Literally spent an hour and a half going through the other things that suck money out of that. Right. You know, and we talked about this a little bit, but you know, there's there's fixed expenses like your venue cost, mm-hmm. like your for the most part your staffing costs if you're going to pay your staff. I mean, whether you have two flights or four flights, mm-hmm. if you have one platform, it's the same amount of staff. Now, sometimes I will pay staff a little bit less or more based on the length of the meet. Sure. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a point in there where it doesn't really matter how many lifters you have. The staff is just, that's the cost. Yep. Um, the venue, definitely. That's just a fixed cost. You, you've got equipment, whether it's rental or you've purchased it, you've got the depreciation on it. So you've got that that goes into it as well. Yep. Then you've got your variable costs, things like awards. I usually budget for around... $15 a person. Mm-hmm. Not that everyone's going to have a $15 award. Sometimes awards do cost that, but not everyone gets one. Um, and then you include best lifters in there, which yeah. I'll usually budget for anywhere from 25 to 75 mm-hmm. for belts, even more. Yeah, um, yeah. Those are, those are pricey, but nice. Again, mm-hmm. that's why we do save them for bigger meets. Yep. And you got to think about, you know, other things that, you know, Maybe you don't need to do, but you should do, like paying your staff, we talked about, but like also providing food and drink for your staff. Because if you're going to work them all day yeah. and you're not really going to give them a break or a lunch break, you got to feed them while you're there. It's kind so, of a, kind of a nice thing to do. <laughs> right. So you don't want to have your staff go down. I've gone to some meets where I've worked where they didn't feed the staff, and it's really aggravating mm-hmm. as a staff member. So I always make sure I have plenty of food for the staff. Yep. Um, you know, there's other. Your fixed expense would be like your sanction fee, which is not very much. But then you've got drug tests, which is going to be variable based on the number of yeah. you know, lifters you have, or in the case of us, how many AAPF lifters you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's always, you know, the big ones is you either have facility rental or you have the cost of your own facility. Mm-hmm. Or if maybe you've negotiated a deal to just get the space in exchange for maybe room nights, then you've got the cost of moving equipment. Yep. Normally you don't have all of those, but... Those are big expenses there. You know, you, you're either going to rent the facility um, or you're going to be moving equipment and or you move equipment. Or yep. if it's at your own place, then there's, you know, internal costs. And as you said, you know, depreciation and, you know, extra cleaning and extra toiletries yep. and, you know, all those extra things that goes into having it at your own facility that is, you know, essentially a, a built-in cost. Even though we run it in 2XL, it's not like... There's no it's, not, co- it's free because right we're paying a regular rent every month. Granted, that's going to be the cost no matter what, anyways. But there's additional cost to the facility. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I can tell you the amount of toilet paper I have to freaking <laughs> get for meets is is high. Yeah, and and this is just my take on it. One of those things that I think is important is if anybody gets kind of been out of shape that oh you know a, a meet director may make money as long as the a lot of these things that we're talking about are checked off where you've got a, a good venue, you've got people there to help, you're safe. And, and, you know, I think it's the right thing to do to pay those who are helping. There's awards. There's a timeline. There's a lot of the, the parameters you would want for a well-run just event, not even a power team, but just an event. I want my meat directors – this is not even you, Eric. This is anybody. I want meat directors making money because, you know what, that means they're going to do it again and again, and I will have a consistent experience. That's what I would want as a lifter. And that's another thing you have to think about with is – most meat directors are not going to run just one meat. Hopefully not. So if you're going to run another meat, you know, doing things like paying your staff and paying them generously is going to make them feel better about helping you at the next meet. It does. Sure. Could I get away with paying my staff 
50% of what I do? And would they be okay with it? Yeah. Would they be less likely to help me at the next meet and work a 12-hour day for 40, 50 bucks versus 100 bucks that I usually pay them for that kind of day? Yeah. I mean, there was a meet director around here that really underpaid the referees and they really don't care how much money they make. But when you're driving out a distance mm-hmm. and you're only getting basically your gas covered, we had to talk to him and say, listen, if you want my referees to help you, you need to pay them a little bit more. The standard is X and you're paying them Y. Yeah. And so if you're going to run more than one event, I mean, yeah, you have to provide a good experience for the lifters. You don't want to give them, you know, chintzy $2 medals that I get off crown awards with, yeah. you know, the, the Olympic lifter logo on them and nothing unique about the meet. You know, I want to give them a custom unique award that I personally would like getting, even though I personally would rather get a medal for most meets just because it doesn't take up as much space. Yeah. But like the awards we gave out at the Illinois Raw Power Challenge, they weren't that big, but they had the meet logo on them, mm-hmm. which was unique to that meet. I personally would have liked to get an award like that because it wasn't so They're cool. It wasn't so big. It was unique. It was something different. Um, I like awards like that. I mean, I have some big trophies. I liked getting it at my first couple of meets as a high schooler. Yep. So we will do those sometimes at meets. It's cool to get those big, you know, double pillar, double decker yeah, trophies. Yeah, I got, got one of those. Actually, my very first best lifter award was from uh, you guys. Was, was, it was, like the, was it like the four foot one from it the was. raw meet? Yeah, yes. so it basically was as tall as I am. And uh, so that was nice. Uh, We've only done that a couple of times, but I thought, ah, let's do the big. Down at Rich East. And, yep, yep, the big ones. Yep. So. So we've talked about a lot of stuff when it comes to to me. I think people have a good idea of the logistics of it. So, and my experience is the meets I've done with Two XL have have been excellent. That's why I keep going back to them. Uh, what do you feel you do well as a promoter? Yeah, and I don't like to toot my own horn. Um, I would like to think I'm a good meet director, maybe not the best, but I think my best meet director. Everyone agrees. <laughs> I know meet directors. I think the evidence would show that at least I'm running meets well enough that people want to come back to them. Yep. And so I do, I try to self-evaluate every meet and think mm-hmm. like, what did I do well? What didn't I do well? Um, what can we improve upon? I the think, national anthem. <laughs> yeah. A four plus minute long national anthem, probably not optimal. <laughs> I think as far as what I do well as a meet director, first of all, I think organization. I think I'm, I, I think ahead on a lot of items, Mm -hmm. and I try to pre-organize things as much as I humanly can. You definitely need a staff for a meet to run well, but I try to take out all the variables as much as I humanly can prior to. you know. So for instance, like when you're running weigh-ins, I try to have everything on the scorecard that the weigh-in staff would need. Mm -hmm. The t-shirt size if they pre-ordered it. If they owe money, have that on the scorecard. Already have on there what weight class they're supposed to be in, the division they're supposed to be in. So when you enter it in the computer... Um, have them alphabetized, not in a random order. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try to think about all the things that I can do on the back end to make sure the meet itself runs as well as it can the day of the meet. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to think about, you know, the logistics of how lifters will move in a venue and where people will set up and all the things we've talked about here. Mm-hmm. I think one of my strengths is that I do think through the various scenarios of the meet and think how things can or cannot work because I've gone to, lifted in, helped with, and run so many meets, mm-hmm. I have a good idea of you know what can go wrong yeah. and what mistakes I have certainly made in the past. Sure. I've seen other meet directors make in the past and try to learn definitely from those mistakes. Can you talk about like 
going that a little for like maybe even like the efficiency of the meat and the flow. You, you talk about that a little bit. Kind of kind of talk about that a little more. Yeah, you know, I I kind of see myself as threading the needle between the two meat directors I helped early in my powerlifting career. Mm-hmm. One is Ernie Franz, who had a very lifter friendly meets that was always welcoming, welcomed me, and that's why I got mm-hmm. into powerlifting. And I used to help with Dennis Brady's USAPL meets, which were run as efficiently as any meet I'd seen back in those days. He was super efficient. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that he wasn't lifter friendly, but it wasn't the same environment and feel you mm-hmm. got from an Ernie Franz APF meet. I kind of wanted to thread the needle between those two where I would be lifter friendly. You know, I would engage with the lifters. If there was an issue, I wouldn't, you know, just blow them off. I'd try to help them through it. But at the same time, be efficient so that we are not at the venue until six, seven, eight o'clock at night, you know, all the time. Right. Um, our, our second summer bash was way bigger than I thought it would be. And it literally went to like nine o'clock at night. And that was when like, oh, shit, these meets are getting real. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out a way to do them better. Yep. Um, and that's when we started looking into computerized scoring. And I think think that's when we got the bar load program that projected on the wall. We didn't have that. We were doing, you know, just loading charts. The referees were running out. Um, so, yeah, I, again, from that organization looking forward standpoint, I do try to run the meets as efficiently as possible while also keeping in mind I want to provide an experience that's positive for the lifters. That's not just like blowing them through and not considering the lifters. You know, a, a local lifter here talked about a meet he did in another state where there was like six or seven lifters in the flight and they didn't give them a break. And it's like, that's so fast. That's, that's not going to be a, a positive lifting experience no, for the lifters. Beat the hell up. You, you want to find that fine point where you run the meet efficiently so that people feel like, you know, they're not there all, all, all day until late, late in the night. Mm-hmm. And on the, the other token, you know, they feel like they have adequate time to get through their lifting yep. and perform optimally. Right. I, I, I run meets, that I would personally like to lift in. That's kind of my credo. Okay. Like if it's a meet that I would like personally like to lift in, an award that I personally would like to receive, you know, at with equipment and in a venue that I personally would like, then that is a good kind of standard as someone who's been lifting in meets for twenty years. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I mean, based on all this, it sounds like everybody should go try to run their own meet. You know, they have the blueprint now. It's uh it's gonna be pretty simple. Any <clears throat> any downsides to running meets? There is, you know, the first one is that it's difficult for me to lift in meets in Illinois anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when Ernie Franz was still running meets and when Dick Zenzen was running meets, mm-hmm. there was still the opportunity for me to lift in meets in Illinois. And it's difficult because the way we have it set up in Illinois, you can only set state records if you're an Illinois resident and you do a meet in Illinois. Right. And as of right now, I basically, along with Howard and 2XL, run with the exception of one meet, all the meets in Illinois. And the only other one right now is CrossFit defines rep timber. Yep. And I ain't lifting raw, I can tell you that player. Whatever. <laughs> I'm cultured swine. So that's one downside on the same token because meets are often on the weekends, and that's when I do a lot of my heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. It can be difficult to get my own training in sure. around running those meets um, because I'm not only – you know, lifting on my own meets, sometimes I'm helping in other people's meets, like yeah. Laura Phelps or helping with the WPO. Yep. Um, you know, and then you do have to think about uh, what other people are doing in the marketplace. I mean, I've probably been running meets now the longest of anybody in Illinois, in mm-hmm. Chicago, mm-hmm. and I probably have some of the bigger meets in the area, but there's definitely always going to be other meets out there. There's going to be other, you know, types of meets and people that want – you know, say walked out squats with a 45 pound bar and we don't offer that. Yep. And so I get it. 
Um, we can't, I don't want to offer everything to everybody. Here's what right. we offer with APF meets. Yep. We use a monolith. We use a squat bar. We use a competition bench. Again, we run meets that I would like to run in. I personally would not like to lift in a meet with a walked out squat. Sure. I'm not saying that's wrong. Um, that's just not what we offer. Um, and so there's always going to be some competition and you have to keep your eye on what other meet directors are doing. Now, sometimes we've had meet directors that run meets of opposite times of mine and, our meets can kind of complement each other where, hey, you might have some lifters that lift in my meet yep. and their buddy help them. And then that buddy lift in another meet and the lifter that lifted in my meet helped them at the other meet. Right. You know, when they're when that's not the case, I think that's not optimal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, that's something I have to think about when I schedule meets and when I run meets is, you know, what else other people are doing. And making sure that I keep my my meets at a level that matches that of the competition from a cost perspective, from a quality perspective, from an award perspective. I usually have tried to price my meets a little bit less than other meet directors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't necessarily price them, uh, using my philosophy in general, is I don't want to be the cheapest. I don't want to be the most expensive. I want to be kind of right in the middle and provide value yes, based the on the meat. value. Right. You know, we, we offer meets like the beginner's meets, which are very low price. There's yeah. 60 to $65. You don't get an award for those, but you get a high value of the information in the seminar. Right. Um, versus a state meet. It's a big, giant meet, a lot of competition, you know, cool awards. Um, yeah, that's a little bit higher, but I still price but, it. But there's a lot of value in being in a large competition yep. venue. So there, there's different value. Definitely. So yeah, th- those are probably the biggest downsides that probably my own lifting and my own training takes can take a back seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably in general being a gym owner, um, yeah. which of which for 2XL running meets is a big component of our business model. Sure. So we've gone through all these logistics, the ups, the downs, the the billions and billions that you obviously make as a meat director. Right. Um, I obviously have a lot of fun with that. It's just, it, I, I get the business part of it. What is one thing that you'd want to tell somebody or even want to tell Eric Stone 20 years ago um, when they're thinking about potentially running a meet? Um, I'll start with what I'd tell somebody else to think about running a meet. Um, my first suggestion would be to find another local meet director, or if there's nobody locally, travel, mm-hmm. yep. and just offer to be their shadow for yeah. the entire, like, from the setup to late at night when you're setting up chairs, mm-hmm. and, and offer to volunteer. I would do this. If, the, if I would tell myself this 20 years ago, I would say, follow Ernie Franz around with him running a meet. Mm-hmm. Do everything he does and more. Mm-hmm watch everything he does and just offer to volunteer to help set up equipment, to help tear down equipment, to work the meat in every spot that you can learn as much as you, I kind of learned on the job. I mean, I was helping with meats already, Mm -hmm. but I kind of learned on the job along with help from Ernie and Maris on like the things you needed to know. But if I could have, I would have started even more and said, Hey Ernie, I think I want to run meats at some point. So let me be your shadow. Let me be your assistant. You don't have to pay him anything. Just give me the knowledge mm-hmm. of I want to be everywhere you are from the day before the meet to the day of the meet mm-hmm. to the teardown. And Ernie would joke about, yeah, you know, just wait till the end of the meet when it's like you and Jackie, the only ones left schlepping plates into your car, moving them back to the gym. And sure enough, that certainly happened sometimes mm-hmm. when uh, there was a summer bash. We ran two platforms, two sessions because we only had one day. And this was right before 2XL opened, and it was like 9, 9.30 at night, and like everyone was gone, and it was only a few key members of Team Stone taking down the monoliths, loading up wow. the trailer, driving it back to Right Fit at the time. Um, was that at Rich East? 
It was at Rich East, yes. That was my first summer bash. Oh, okay. That was just a murderous meet. I was about to die afterwards. I, I remember that meet. That meet was brutal. Yeah, it was not optimal Yeah, from that perspective, from the length. But I think if somebody's thinking about running a meet, that would be my first thing is that learn everything you can from another meet director and, and offer to help, and maybe you could help improve what they do, and they'll learn and you'll learn. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I did do as an early meet director, but I would suggest a new meet director, is to set a budget. Like sit down in Excel or even on a legal pad and list all the plausible expenses – all the plausible incomes, and then whatever the expenses are, add a little bit more to that because there's mm-hmm. almost – usually with me, there's almost always unknown expenses that I budget for, things like broken toilet handles, yep. things like uh, extra duct tape that I forgot to buy. Yep. Chalk. Um, chalk that I forgot to buy. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. I thought I had chalk. I use it that budget, but yeah, you forget those things. No, sometimes if you're good, maybe you'll come under budget on other things, but usually you want to budget for everything and then budget a little bit more than you think mm-hmm. because then it's just a bonus if you come under that. Yep. Um and yeah, if you I I personally isn't even I don't budget anything for the door yep. and for concessions and for additional t-shirt sales. I'll assume that we'll get zero. And then make sure that the meet can run if we have nobody else come but the lifters. And then, you know, that's kind of your additional profit is mm-hmm. the door and the T-shirt. So, but have a budget. And I did that for my first meet to make sure I didn't lose any money. Yep. And I, I think one of, uh, another reason why, not from the lifter's perspective, but from a personal perspective, how I've been able to continue running meets is that I've always keeping a close eye on the bottom line. Not, mm-hmm. again, trying to maximize profits at the expense of the meet, but making sure I don't ever lose my ass on meats yep. because if you, whether I make a little bit of money or not, or a lot of money, I've never lost any money on meats. I've always been able to at least break even, even if it means paying myself basically zero. Yeah. Uh, I've always kind of looked at that bottom line and adjusted expenses accordingly. You know, for instance, with the Midwest equipped open, we had about a month ago. We only had about 20 lifters. Mm-hmm. If I were to pay my staff what I normally do for a normal meet, I would not have made any money. Right. So I offshoot that. And I, I'm able to do this because we run so many meets. I took some of that expense and I offered free entries for the spotters to a future meet. Mm-hmm. Um, I had two lifters from Surge, Tim, and Dan mm-hmm. who wanted to get into the raw meet and they were on the waiting list. And I said, well, I got a deal for you. <laughs> you can spot at my Midwest to cope to open. And not only will I get you in the raw meet from the waiting list, but I'll comp your entry. And so we we offshoot that expense to yep. a, to a future event. Basically, um, backdoor deals is what we're talking about here. Right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I always looked at that the kind of underbelly. Yeah. I always looked at that bottom line and making sure that you know if the meat's doing really really well, it's like okay, could we make an investment in something? Could we buy a new bar? Yep. Could we you know do we need a new projector? Do we need a new computer? I mean, the, uh, the, the, the light system, right? The light system we just bought, which was not cheap, but it was an investment. Uh, and actually, the first probably, I don't know, 10 years of running meets, I very, I, for the most part, I really didn't make any money. I mm-hmm. just continually reinvested that yeah. into new equipment so that my team had equipment, so that we had equipment for future meets. And it's only now that we had 2XL in a business that we've started to be able to build upon all that you know, front-end investment of yeah. equipment and experience and that type, and lights and all those different things that I continually bought with every meet. Yep. Um, those would probably be the, the, the couple things that I would, you know, suggest people look at. Makes sense. 
Well, Eric, uh, I, I think that's the questions I've got. I, I appreciate you taking uh, some time on our own show. I mean, it's not like you know we uh, a, a regular interview is, is going through this, but I think it's important that people understand that when they walk in on meet day, they've weighed in, they've done their training, and don't get me wrong, getting to the point where you're going to go compete in meet is a lot. But there is equally as much effort to make sure that you have a, a an experience that you want to remember uh, that goes into that meet date. I think it, I think people have a good idea of that now, um, kind of hearing what goes on behind the curtain. Um, anything else to add to that? No, I I would just say that, yeah, I do try. That's one of the things I try to do is try to provide a an experience for the lifters, a positive experience. Because I had such a positive experience at my first meet yeah. and my first meets that I want to be able to continue to offer that to new lifters, provide mm-hmm. that because I think be the gateway drug. I, I think one of the reasons why powerlifting has started to have an uptick in the last five, six, seven years, in addition to we've talked about more people and more, especially more females getting into yep. lifting weights, yep. is that I think there is starting to be a focus because we spend so much time on computers and phones and social media that people are craving experiences. They're yep. craving real life. 100%. Experiences where you're actually going somewhere, going to a concert, going to a game, mm-hmm. going to a powerlifting meet, and having a real life experience with other people because we probably do a little bit less of that than we did, say, 20, 30 years ago. Agreed. This so. is the experiential generation. So, yeah. So, next week, Bane, we're going to cover another suggestion from our boy, Georgie, yeah. at, at Suits and Boots. He yeah. had the suggestion of the female DMs. He did. He's had the suggestion of we talk about what constitutes. What is a, quote, powerlifter? Power Are you a powerlifter only if you lift in a meet? Are you a powerlifter if you lift weights? Are you a powerlifter if you're a bench-only person? Powerlifter deadlift only. Right. So those are all good questions, which has been one of those things debated on social media and message boards back in the day, back yep. and forth. It's and been on multiple podcasts. It'll be a good topic. Yeah. No, I think that'll be a good one. Probably not quite as long as this one. Probably not. Uh, this was a long one. I got a lot to say on it. Um, with that, Ben and I would like to wish all of our listeners a Merry Christmas. A very Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. Yeah, that too. And we hope to see all of you at the new 2XL uh, starting on January 2nd. 11, Be there. 1141 South Main, Lombard, Illinois. With that, this is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and anger. <laughs>